0: Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for reliability people to better themselves, both at work and at home. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvarowski. On this week's episode, I welcome on Sonia Mathura from Strategic Reliability Solutions. We talk about lubricant degradation we talk about oxidation, and we talk about what oil analysis tests should we be looking at to identify when to change oil. The audio is finally up to par, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I've put some troubleshooting in play, and I've bought some foam triangles to make sure that the, the podcast sounds good, so I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm definitely finally happy with it, so that's great. (laughs) If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com. Sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. If you like the podcast, please tell your colleagues about it and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. I've been putting out some memes lately one per day, so I hope you guys are enjoying those. I'm having fun with them, and I hope you guys are having fun with them too. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email at Project at gmail.com. And before we get into the episode, I have a message from Upkeep with a special offer. So let's hear that. And I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode. Do you want a better reliability program? Do you want better data quality in your CMMS? Well, having frustrated and overworked shop floor people isn't the way to get that great reliability program. Often we make our mechanics, millwrights, and operators do paper rounds and then transcribe that information into a desktop CMMS. This causes more frustration and we'll likely lose data quality in that process. So why don't we try something different? Upkeep maintenance management is different. It's a mobile first CMMS that takes the work out of work orders with its easy to use mobile application. With a snap of a picture and just a few keystrokes on your mobile device, you can update work orders in a matter of seconds. Upkeep is a mobile first CMMS designed to be easy for your maintenance personnel. So easy, it was voted number one for ease of use by maintenance teams. Rob's Reliability Project has partnered with Upkeep to not only give you a great mobile first CMMS, but also if you purchase an annual subscription, you get one month free and a bonus one hour free coaching call with me. Make your reliability program better and make your text lives easier by going to robsreliability.com upkeep and sign up today. Hey guys, we're back and I'm here with Sonia Mathura again. Sonia, how are you?
1: I am good. I'm really good. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm doing great and, and it's really great to talk to you again. Obviously, you know, you're dialing in from sunny Trinidad. So how's the weather out there today?
1: Oh my gosh, it is so warm. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, really warm today. Today is Scorchia. Uh, scorcher. <laughs>
0: I'm jealous i just I actually just got back from the pool myself uh, we had outdoor outdoor water pole this morning, but it's it's about nineteen degrees Celsius, so it's not too warm
1: oh it's it's around thirty seven c here, so I'm sure we could swap some temperatures
0: that's right <laughs> we We could both be around twenty five and it'd oh, be perfect
1: <laughs> i I would prefer that definitely. <laughs>
0: So, Sonia, you know, we, I wanted to have you on today. We wanted to dive a little bit more into lubrication. And, you know, like the last few we've talked about, we talked a little bit more along the sides of like change in oil, kind of what some lube specialist should, should know. But we never really talked about like oil analysis and, and what kind of the impact of that is. So maybe just to kick us off, can you, can you just give us an introduction into like, what is viscosity? Why is it important in lubrication?
1: Okay, well, I think a lot of people have different perceptions of viscosity. So like there's the, the textbook definition that uh, viscosity is defined as the resistance to flow and share. But then on your data sheets, you'll see uh, kinematic viscosity and absolute viscosity. So they differ a bit. So your kinematic would be your resistance to flow and shear, but that would be due to gravity. However, your absolute would be resistance to flow and shear, but due to internal friction. So you need to know those measurements depending on what you're looking at. And with your, they're both measured in centistokes. St. And with your kinematic viscosity, because you're doing resistance to flow and share due to gravity, you measure that at either 40 degrees C or 100 degrees C. So that is like your, your basic definition about viscosity. And I think um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that uh viscosity we talk about different grades so like we could talk about like an iso vg100 oil but that doesn't exactly mean that the oil is going to be 100 centistokes so when you have viscosities they actually fall within particular ranges and like for your iso vg100 your viscosity could be anywhere between 90 centistokes or 110 centistokes so while you think that your oil is gonna be exactly 100 centistokes it's never the case (laughs) but it just falls within that range so it's important to know that because uh a lot of like um lubricant suppliers when they're blending their oils they can either decide to go on the lower end of the scale or the higher end of the scale. So for instance, if you're looking at two different brands of the same grade of oil, you may find that one is slightly thicker than the other. And you would think, well, how is this possible? It's possible because they fall within the same range. It's just wherever they're blended at, if they say the minimum or the maximum.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. And something like just for people, just to clarify, the ISO oils the temperature that it's graded at is 40 degrees celsius and to to know whether it's in or out of grade it's plus or minus 10%. That's where the 90 and the 110 came from. And then with the SAE oils it's 100 celsius which is the temperature that it's graded at and then you'll if you pull up the chart I believe it's the SAE J300 or something like that yes. chart. Yes, I think. It so. shows you you know, what that viscosity range is supposed to be.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's it's important to know that rather than think that it's one viscosity at all time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and like another thing when you mentioned, you know, the oil is not going to be exactly 100 if it's, you know, an ISO 100. It's just another reason why if you're reading an oil analysis sample, that having a reference oil is super important.
1: Oh, yes, definitely, definitely important.
0: So a question I often used to get is, you know, can I use a hydraulic oil in my engine or can I mix? Like, let's say I have, you know, two different grades, like I have a 32 and I have 100. Like, can I blend them to get a 64?
1: Oh, oh boy. Yes, yeah, that is <laughs> that is that is a question that we get a lot. Um There are some instances where you can use hydraulic oil in your engine, but those are very specific instances, perhaps in like the agricultural sector where the transmission, the final drive, all of those hydraulics, they're rolled into one. So you have to use one oil for everything there. Um, Apart from that, I will not use a hydraulic oil into an engine oil. I've had so many, um, especially from the marine sector, a lot of instances where that would have happened. And um, it would be somebody out on a boat in the middle of the ocean and they're topping off their um, their engine and they put hydraulic oil instead. So they have three drums of hydraulic oil in a 10-drum sump and they're asking me the million-dollar question, can we move <laughs> the boat?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: in a case like that, it would depend on... Um, it, dep- it will depend on the cost involved because you have to think, you have to weigh the costs of do you want to do an engine repair when you're finished in trying to move that boat to get it back to land. And if you're going to do that, your boat is going to be down for a couple of days. So you're going to be losing revenue. Or if you want to ask somebody to get the oil to you to do that oil change and get entirely engine oil in it, then that would be perfect um if you're talking about mixing oils i have gotten that question from a rig an oil rig once by mistake they put the 100 uh hydraulic oil into thirty two 30 and they asked if they could continue now there is um there is a formula that can be used to determine uh the viscosity of an oil using the different parts so if you had a uh, Seven parts of 32 to 3 parts of uh, 100, what would be your results in grade? I generally tend not to do that because there are so (laughs) many factors involved besides just getting that grade right that I would prefer to stick with a standard grade and use that instead because there are so many things that could go wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And it's one thing when I when I was asked that question, I would always say, short answer, no. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of these sites, like the ones that asked me, they were these northern sites, fly in, fly out in the winter. Oh. And so they there was no access to get oil. So if you have to, worst case scenario, like let's say you're on that boat and there's no way you could get oil to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the recommendation that I would give is stay with within the same lube family so the same brand name don't mix across brand names Uh, the reason for that is the additives typically tend to stay roughly the same and that's kind of the other thing right so if we had an engine oil and a hydraulic oil and the viscosity was the same at a hundred like why couldn't we use them in those in like vice versa applications oh
1: that's not gonna happen because your engine oil is it's blended differently to your hydraulic oil so like your hydraulic oil the purpose of a hydraulic oil is really to transmit power and you're looking at doing that through smaller clearances so your hydraulic oil is supposed to be cleaner compared to your engine oil your engine oil those are made with like a 30% 30% additive, 70% base oil. So they would have to cater to the different components in the engine. So they may be more with ZDDP for anti-wear, all of these things, cor- corrosive additives. So they would try, they would have a different blend from a hydraulic oil. So even though the viscosities are the same, they are very different. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And the properties, like if you're looking at your oil analysis report, you could see the different properties that they have. Just if you look in the additive section, zinc, phosphorus, sometimes you'll see like if you get acid number or base number, those will be different. So you'll be able to really pick those out. Calcium's another one. So those are some things that you'll look at and you'll really see if you just measure two fresh new oils, you'll really see the difference there. Now, Sonia, when should I change oil? Like how do I know that the oil's kind of made it to the end of
1: its life? Well, so usually I would recommend go with what your OEM says. I will always go to that, that direction first. So if your OEM says like for gearbox, your, your limit should be 500, 500 running hours, then I would kind of stick with that. But what I would tend to do is if I have like oil analysis running on it. Uh, when I start seeing the parameters going into the red region or going towards the warning limits, and I know that it should not be there, I would try to change that oil as soon as possible. Uh, if it goes into the yellow limits where it's not that bad, I would want to just monitor it and make sure that is it that we're seeing some sort of a recurring problem? Is there something more to what's causing this oil to get to those limits? So it's always about understanding what the OEM recommends in terms of your oil drain interval. But at the same point in time, support that with your oil analysis. So they have to work in tandem.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think that for me, what I what I recommend is obviously if your component's under warranty, like the OEM spec, you're going to want to keep to that just because that'll keep your warranty valid. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, once you get beyond that, especially if you're monitoring often, you'll be able to pick out various parameters, which will either indicate that you have ingress of water or ingress of particles that kind of stuff or if you have you know lubricant de- degradation now do you want to just give us an introduction like what is lubricant degradation what parameters on an oil analysis report are affected like how does that all work
1: so i think the main purpose of a lubricant is that it has to degrade it has to degrade because it has to perform its function in the component so once once a lubricant doesn't perform its functions i would say it has started degraded so the typical functions of all lubricants would be like protection lubrication of course uh cleaning cooling transmitting power so what you would see or what you would see from your oil analysis reports would be that your viscosity either starts going down or it starts increasing you'd start seeing like your ta and those numbers start fluctuating outside of your regions and then of course you look at your contaminant particles if it is that you're seeing things getting into the oil and if those are acting as catalysts for the oil to degrade faster so that's basically what the lubricant degradation kind of covers
0: Yeah, and for me, you know, when when people ask me, typically most sites, unless you're doing a really good job with, you know, contamination control, cleanliness, storage and handling, those types of things, that if you're really interested in those types of information, go back to the first two podcasts that Sonia and I did together. So we talked a lot about those, but those typically for me, at least in terms of a probability standpoint, Those are the reasons why most people change oil. And if you're really being honest, you can filter most of that stuff out, if not all of it, right? So like if you have particle ingress, if you get a filter cart, you can take that out. If you have water ingress, again, if you have a filter cart, even at the worst case, if it's dissolved water, you can get it out using vacuum dehydration. The only ones that I've never really seen people I don't think you can take it out as the coolant or fuel.
1: Oh yeah. Those are a little bit difficult. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but but I mean like from an engine standpoint, you're changing the oil pretty often, so it's not that big a yes. deal anyways. So do a good job on that and then you're you'll really see your lube get to the end of its life. Now, do you want to just break down for us the most common types of degradation? Well
1: the thing about degradation is that we, we have a, a bit of an argument going on within the industry that <laughs> there are three main types, and then I have other people saying that there are six main types. I tend to stick with the, the guys that say six main types, just mainly because even though some of them can be lumped under the other they all produce different byproducts and they need a slightly different environments to actually happen in. So I would go with these six and those six are um, oxidation, thermal breakdown, micro additive depletion, uh, electrostatic spark discharge, and they have contamination as well. So those are your, your main six uh, degradation mechanisms. And I will stick with it being six or not three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Obviously, you know, when you teach oil analysis, typically the one that we talk about the most is oxidation. How do we measure oxidation when we're looking at an oil analysis report? What should we be looking for to identify that, hey, this is, you know, it's degraded past its life?
1: Well, with oxidation, what tends to happen is that you actually have uh, free radicals being produced so once your free radicals are produced, your your lubricant becomes a bit sacrificial in that all of the antioxidants additives that it would have in it would start to be released to sort of like prevent the free radicals from you know, wrecking and have throughout the entire thing. So, what happens is that you have a bit of a a bit of a war going on between the free radicals being produced and the antioxidant additive package trying to combat that. And once the the antioxidant additive package is finished, because it has it's not infinite, it has a, a a you know a certain quantity in there. Once that is done, um you have, like, determination of your oxida- oxida- oxidation. So what happens there is that you start getting varnish and sludge. And in terms of looking for that in your oil analysis report, what you need to look for would be an increase in viscosity. You can look at your acid numbers. That's going to increase because you have more acids floating around. You have nothing there to neutralize it anymore. Uh, you can look for your RPVOT. Uh, it's a bit more expensive, that test, but totally worth it. Uh, it kind of tells you your remaining oxidation life of the, um, the lubricants. And then you have your MPC. Your MPC tells you how much uh varnish or sludge would have built built up in that oil and you have different ranges to sort of gauge i want to say how clean your oil is so depending on the range you'd be able to gauge what level of oxidation you have going on in your oil so those would be the types of tests that you look at for oxidation and you also have ruler are <laughs>
0: yeah and some of those tests are are kind of very specialized and depending on the equipment that you're running you know like if you're running a turbine absolutely go for it but if you're just running like a few gearboxes that maybe they're maybe they're you know 100 liters or something less than that you're probably not going to go down the advanced oxidative, you know, like the RPVOTs or the rulers, you probably just go with acid number if you're changing your oil on condition, right? So there's, we will make that distinction is if you're just doing like standard preventive oil changes, you probably won't even need that as well. It just depends what you're doing at your site. Exactly. (laughs) Now the next one, that you, that I'd love for you to walk us through is thermal degradation. Like, how does that work, and what are we looking for?
1: Oh, so I think a lot of people get confused with thermal degradation and oxidation. They kind of think that they are the same, but they are not. Uh, the difference, the main difference is that with thermal degradation, you need to have temperatures in excess of 200 degrees Celsius. So you kind of have a a bit of a limit there. You know that once it goes in excess of that, it should be thermal degradation. And what happens is that your viscosity actually decreases, whereas with oxidation, you have an increase in viscosity. And uh, uh, with oxidation, you get the varnish and the sludge. But thermal degradation, you actually get like lacquer and carbonaceous deposits. So... Your main difference between your thermal degradation and oxidation would be that thermal degradation you have a decrease in viscosity, oxidation is an increase in viscosity, and the byproducts, of course. So with the thermal degradation, the lacquer and carbonaceous deposits, and oxidation, be varnish and sludge. So those are the main differences between those two.
0: And the thing that that I just want to mention about thermal degradation is this one. You probably won't even need the oil analysis to tell you. If you just look at it when it comes out of your system, you should be able to identify that something's wrong.
1: Definitely.
0: <laughs> so this one, I mean, you know, like usually, if you have a good lube specialist, they'll they'll take the oil out. It, it'll be black. It may even smell burnt, depending on your system, and and they'll notice that the viscosity has really kind of fallen away. And so this is something that if you have a good lube guy, which I hope you do, they'll be able to pick that one out pretty quick. Now, can you break down for us microdieseling?
1: So microdieseling, remember I told you that they said some of them could be lumped under one, one another. That can it is a form of tumor degradation, but it's a form of pressure-induced thermal degradation. And you have to have temperatures in excess of a 1,000 Celsius. So to me, it is something different. <laughs> and I think it should be treated differently. And um, you can either have like a low flashpoint with low implosion or a high implosion pressure. So depending on the types of implosion, you can get different products from So with micro you can get like suits, tars, sludge, cokes, t- resins. So it really depends on what process happens within the micro-dieseling. So it's it's a bit different and you need to have that temperature change.
0: <laughs> now, is micro-dieseling the same thing as like when you're using a hydraulic unit and you? it sounds like you're pushing marbles through it?
1: it does it kind of sounds like that um there is a slight difference between that and electrostatic spark discharge uh with electrostatic spark discharge you will hear that um with turbines it is very common with turbines but with that one with the esd you actually need to have a temperature in excess of ten thousand c so yes, it may fall under thermal degradation, but it's <laughs> slightly different in that um, there is a static that builds up on the inside, and once that causes a spark, uh, the oil could polymerize very quickly, and produce varnish and sludge. And sometimes your tumor couples may not even pick up on that 10,000 C because it's so it happens very rapidly, but. For the technicians or the guys on the ground, they would be hearing this spark at the turbines. So sometimes just listening to the environment, understanding what's going on, what could be happening, could lead you to understand better what degradation mechanism is happening on the inside of your components.
0: Now, is there anything we can do to reduce the probability of electrostatic discharge or is that just part of the component
1: you can actually there are some anti-static filters that can be placed on into your system before it gets into like different components or different areas so that drastically reduces your electrostatic spark discharge um chances so i would definitely try and get some of that especially if you're in the turbine industry because it's very common with
0: these two <laughs> <laughs> That's a pro tip right there.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> now, the next one that you talked about was, you know, you talked about additive depletion. And, like, is that the same? Like, obviously, you have it lumped separately than oxidation, but is that the same? Or how do you, how do, why do you say that's different?
1: Well, I think it's different because its it doesn't just encompass one additive. It can be any number of additives. It could be uh, your ZDDP or it could be um, like your, your oxidation, your rust and oxidation stuff going coming out of your lubricants. So it can either be organic or inorganic in nature. So that's why I say it's a little bit different from oxidation because you don't need to have all that free radical escaping and all of that. What could happen is that uh, because of the way that uh, lubricants work and you have the sacrificial nature, you realize that to compensate for uh, a highly corrosive environment, you would realize that the rust and the RNO additives start depleting a lot faster So when you get those sort of deposits, it's very important that if you see uh, any type of deposit in your system, that you actually collect a bit of that deposit and you send it for testing because you never know what that deposit could be unless you send it to a lab and actually identify what components are in there. So I think that is very important rather than just thinking that everything is oxidation and everything is varnish and sludge and everything relates to that that's that's not true <laughs> <laughs> things can be different
0: <laughs> yeah and it, it could be something obvious like when you get water in your system some of the additives they 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 hydrolyze with water and so it doesn't necessarily have to be just oxidation right like it, it could be you got a little water contamination and maybe your antifoam is, it stops working so those things are like you can visually pick that up in a bullseye. So it's, it's important to, to always do that visual inspection.
1: Yes, very important. I think that's the first, uh, that's the first identification method before you start testing or anything like that. Because your guys are in the field, they are around the equipment, they know what's going on. If they see something, if they hear something, they should make a note of it and just let people know what's going on.
0: Absolutely. It's something, you know, it was actually funny. The quote from this morning was from a few weeks ago's podcast with Steve Doby. And he talks about how the lube specialist and the servicemen who they go out and they do the rounds, they do the filter changes, they do the lube on at least on mining trucks. And he was saying like, they're really valuable people and it's really hit home with a lot of people. And I think that it's it's like it's obvious. Like they touch all the equipment so frequently. And if you can get in their buy-in and their engagement where they're coming back and they're saying, Well, this one didn't sound right. The lube looked weird on this one, like you can gain so much information from them.
1: And you can gain lead time as well before it starts actually degrading or getting to the point where you have to you know, do an unplanned shutdown, or, you know, put your equipment away for some time. So they are actually the specialists. I say that they are the SMEs in these areas.
0: Yeah, they are. Even though we don't treat them as such, they, they definitely are SMEs.
1: I know. I know. I have that problem here, too. I'm like, these are the most valuable guys here. Why are you all doing this?
0: And it's funny, right? Like if you're at a union site, it's always the youngest, least experienced guy who's the lube tech, and it really shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, getting back into it here. Now, you know, we talked about it, and for me, I think that obviously contamination is number one in terms of things that happen the most often. Now, out of those other, those other degradation. Mechanisms like which one's the most common and what do we do about it?
1: I think honestly, I think oxidation is the most common because I have had so many people uh, come to me and say, you know, it's oxidizing, it's oxidizing, it's sludging, it's it's you know just damaging things. I think the most common would be oxidation, and mainly because it's just very easy for an oil to oxidize once you go past that 40 c you have you start having issues even though contamination is prevalent contamination can be controlled in terms of your dispensing or just getting your loop to the equipment but oxidation is something that you need to look into you need to understand why exactly is oxidation happening and what can i do to prevent it or prevent the stage at which it's happening so i would go with oxidation definitely
0: (laughs) you know maybe maybe let's talk about that so when we're measuring these different failure mechanisms or degradation mechanisms like what oil analysis tests should be we be looking at? And like, what are we looking for?
1: Okay, so I would start off with your basics, Uh, your viscosity, your acid number, your color for viscosity, uh, you're looking at either increase or decrease, but depending on the type of degradation, that's what you're going to lean to. But what I would always say is that you can't just look at one property and decide okay, well, this is um, micro-dieselin or this is oxidation. You need to look at a couple of properties and then make a decision, make an informed decision. So when you have your basic uh, oil analysis test done, which your viscosity, acid number, color, FTIR, that sort of gives you an indication of if the lubricant is degrading or not. And then depending on that and depending on your application as well, then I would say uh, move to the more specific analysis. So then move over to your RPVOT, your MPC, your RULA, uh QSA if necessary. And you can go even to dissolve gas analysis because that as well helps if, you, if you're trying to understand like uh, ESD, electrostatic spark discharge. It lets you know what sort of gases are being released into the oil. And for that test in particular, you need to use a syringe while you're taking the sample so that you don't lose any of the gases in it. It's not a a normal all analysis (laughs) test, so that one you need to be very careful with.
0: It's not your typical $15 slate?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, no. very specialized and if you're doing dga on a transformer you need to have the temperatures being taken temperature on the outside temperature at the transformer it's it's a very long process
0: (laughs) yeah that one i wouldn't necessarily recommend to to most people who are listening i think most of you you can probably get by with the standard slate of testing that your lab offers
1: Definitely. And if it is that you absolutely need to get that done, I would say get the lab to get somebody to be sent over to do that. One.
0: <laughs> yeah, there are some specialized testing that you can get done, like the transformer oils as well. Those are some specialized testing. I definitely recommend getting that because obviously, if you don't have a transformer, your site's out of power. So, <laughs> it's
1: been, yes, they're good. typically pretty
0: important things. <laughs>
1: very very much so
0: <laughs> so Sonia you know we talked about a little bit about lubricant degradation now what do you think is one of the tests that's kind of often overlooked for measuring this degradation
1: I think a lot of people don't realize the power of an FTIR test and why I say that is that it's, it's almost one of the cheapest tests out there but a lot of people don't understand how to read it, and the good thing about an FTIR is that it can tell you exactly which components are present in the oil. And while we may think, "Oh, that's that's nice, that's great," what that sort of brings back to is what is going on in your oil. So if you realize that you have a uh, high levels of phosphorus? Is it that you have an additive depletion going on or do you have something else that is responsible for that? So understanding the components that are in your oil and the levels at which they're at, they help you to identify if you're having some sort of degradation and what type of degradation. Uh, The other thing with FTIR is that you can decide if you have organic or inorganic deposits so it's very crucial to understand that and i think people just overlook that and they think that oh that's just another test but it's actually very very powerful and it's cheap so it's it's good <laughs>
0: yeah it, it's definitely cheap and it's something you know like for some of the you have to be careful a little bit with some of the readings on it because it does have repeatability which can be like 50 percent mm-hmm. which if you're using that for acid number or base number, uh, because your, you know, your rule of thumb for changing out an oil, like if it doubles, you're supposed to change it out in terms of acid number. And if it halves, you're supposed to change it out in terms of base number. If you're using it for those, it's not really that useful. And, you know, for some other stuff, like I think there's some components that overlap. Like if you have water, the peaks overlap with, like zddp or something i forget exactly what it is they do yeah (laughs) but yeah it's a pretty useful test and and if you look at most of the on-site testing like machines that you can buy whether they're the tabletop ones or the handheld ones those ones usually use ftir for most of their testing so yeah definitely definitely check it out and definitely read up on it there is some good information to be had, but there's also, you have to be a little bit careful with them.
1: Definitely, because not every bit of information should be applied um, at will or just just like that. Because even though you may see that, uh, let's say like a power plant, they have a particular frequency of testing and you want to implement it into your um, manufacturing facility, it may not be applicable. So make sure you read the applications and make sure that it has similar conditions that you are operating in. Because that's another thing as well that we had issues with a lot of people try to implement things that they see uh let's say like an ammonia plant in in I don't know the Middle East. They are appliances certain uh testing and certain things uh you may not be able to apply that to an ammonia plants in the netherlands or different environments or different processes so make sure you get those details on processes and environments before you start applying things in your (laughs) plants
0: now sonia before we get you out of here do you have any top tips for us like in terms of lubricant degradation or oil analysis tips?
1: I think my main tip would be just be aware of what's going on in your components when you have them running. Uh, Make friends with your technicians because they are your most valuable guys there. They would know if things are out of the ordinary or if they see things that just They may think, you know, I haven't seen this in my past 10 years and I don't think this should happen, but I'm still going to let somebody know about it so that they can investigate it. So uh, pay attention to your sight glasses. Uh, They are like the windows into your equipment. And just if you if you see stuff that starts looking cloudy or the oil darkens like within a week. And it was a very dark color, you know, something is probably going on there. So I would just say pay attention to your equipment. uh, Just be aware of it and run your monthly tests. And depending on the criticality of your equipment, then decide if you want to do specialized testing. Because specialized testing, even though it may be more expensive, if you think about it, uh, it is actually cheaper to do that testing than to have your plan go down (laughs) (laughs) so invest in money wisely so that would be my tip (laughs)
0: that's right yeah that's absolutely right and if you want to hear more again another plug about the previous two we've done we talked about you know more specific on the intervals like how often you should be testing stuff and you know using that criticality but if you're looking for those, check back to those previous episodes. I think one of them was episode two, and then we were somewhere, I guess it would have been maybe a year ago now. But, but
1: oh boy, time flies. <laughs> that's right.
0: Now, Sonia, you know, before we get you out of here, like, do you have anything to plug? I know you mentioned to me that you're going to be hosting a conference. Do you want to give us a little intro to that?
1: We are actually gearing up to host the first Caribbean asset management Summit in Trinidad and it's going to be awesome. Uh, It's going to be two days. Uh, We're going to do like a conference and an expo. And we're really focusing on asset management, uh, reliability and planning and strategy. we are going to have this year's coming out soon. Just stay tuned for that. It should be in April next year. And we're very excited to have that one because it's going to be extremely awesome. We have a lot of very, very talented speakers and panelists that we will be bringing to Trinidad. Some, some of them will be their first time in Trinidad. So it's going to be very cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll be great.
1: It will be. Yeah, do, you,
0: do you have anything else? Yeah, do you have anything else to plug? Website? Should people follow you on LinkedIn?
1: Yes. Um, you all can find me on LinkedIn. I am usually there all the time. I <laughs> just look for me at Sanya Matura, and there are many Sanya Maturas, so you should just find one. And our website is dot and on there you can actually find our learning corner. Where we have more articles about lubricant degradation and a lot of different reliability snippets, and we have all of Rob's podcasts as well. So <laughs> you can go there and you can definitely check the results.
0: Yeah, that's right. You can you if you well obviously if you found this one you know where all the podcasts are. So <laughs> oh
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So definitely follow Sonia on LinkedIn if if you don't have her yet. You can either, if you came through LinkedIn, she'll be tagged in the post. If not, Sonia Mathura, or she'll be in the podcast notes as well. So you'll, you'll be able to find her easily. Sonia, if you have any, once you put the, the information out for the conference, definitely let me know. Oh, yeah. And I'll,
1: definitely. I'll
0: share it out across mine. And then also, if you want, when, we, when you get some firm dates, we'll have you back on just to do a little intro for us.
1: Oh, that'd be great, Rob.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it should be a fun conference.
1: It is going to be, (laughs) definitely.
0: Now, what what are you going to be speaking about?
1: Oh, should I let that out of the bag yet? Hmm, I'm going to be speaking about lubricant degradation. (laughs) am And I'm going to be spitting it back into your lubrication management systems, and uh, I'm I'm that back to ICML55. So just little little snippets. So you you start seeing those coming out soon enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. Once once you once you get that ICML55 knocked out, we'll we'll have you back on to talk about it. I haven't. I I mean. Now it's kind of nice not not being in the loop game anymore, so I don't have to read those types of things. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh, it's very interesting, though. I love I love how they've put it together. It's it's a it's a great effort, and they've really done outdone themselves with it. So that is very interesting right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. So everyone, you know, Sonia, I appreciate you coming on with us today.
1: That's not a problem at all. <laughs>
0: you're missing out on well at least you're enjoying your air conditioning i don't i don't know it's oh, yeah. a little thirty sevens mm-hmm. too hot for the beach i think
1: it is it is way too hot for anything <laughs>
0: <laughs> so crank that air conditioning up and uh, you know i appreciate you spending your saturday with us
1: no problem at all i will send some warmth your way <laughs> <laughs>
0: Don't worry. I We don't really need it now, but probably, you know, in another three months, I'm going to be calling you to come oh, yeah. down, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
1: gosh.
0: So, everyone, you know, I appreciate you guys listening so much. You know, I hope, I mean, I'm sure the audio is going to be better this week as well, so I, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We went a little bit deeper than we usually do, so if you... If you like that kind of depth to it, just shoot me an email or or ping me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear if you like this kind of depth because we can definitely do this again on different topics or just keep going deep into lube. So yeah, shoot me an email, Rob's Reliability Project at gmail.com or just hit me up on LinkedIn. You know where to find me there. Um, definitely follow Sonia and check out strategic reliability solutions.com on the internet. Get your requests in to go to the conference in Trinidad. Early. Even if you'll just go and then sit on the beach and don't go to any talks at all. I'm sure you'll still have a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell your manager to listen to this episode. So thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.
1: Bye.